and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 168, Losing It on Both Ends. Last time, the Brody Pocket, located just northeast of Lviv in modern western Ukraine, was the latest encirclement of Axis troops. It was also the site of the latest Soviet victory. True, some of the SS and Wehrmacht troops had managed to escape, but most of their heavy equipment was left behind, and now the Soviets controlled lands closer to the German border. Just as the Ukrainian 14th Waffen-SS Grenadier Division had been trying to shield Brody and Lviv to the north of Brody, the 5th SS Panzer Division Viking had been trying to do their part at Koval, to the northeast of Lviv in northwestern Ukraine. The 5th SS Panzer had previously suffered its own hell at the Cherkasy Korsum Pocket in central Ukraine, and it was still recuperating when, on March 12, 1944, what parts of it there were that were gathered were ordered with its Gruppenführer Herbert Gill to head to Koval to help the German garrison there, as the Soviets were approaching. Gill, with parts of the 5th SS Panzer, along with some infantry from the Westland and Germania regiments, arrived, only to then be surrounded and cut off by enemy forces. Now, by early 1944, being surrounded had become the norm, so Gill went through his list of options. Could they break out? No, because one, they mostly had small arms, and two, as the Soviets had been in the area and had engaged with the Koval defenders, the Germans currently had 2,000 wounded men, too many to transport. This left Gill with waiting for a relief force, but while that was being pulled together, the SS commander reorganized the city's defenses to give them more time. By March 29th, a breakthrough force was ready to go, made up of the 8th Company of the Vikings SS Panzer Regiment. Obersturmfuhrer Karl Nikolusi Leck led this force, but soon heavy snows came and ground it to a halt. But Leck would be damned if he was going to leave his brothers-in-arms surrounded by the enemy. Since time immemorial, soldiers have fought and sacrificed themselves, not for king or country, but for those very men who fought beside them, coming to know each other better than any wife or mother. As such, Leck, ignoring orders, took off with his seven new Panther tanks. Engaging a part of the enemy ring during the afternoon of March 30th, Leck and his Panthers cut their way into Kaval. Between Gill strengthening the city's defenses, now augmented by Lex Panzers, the Germans held out until late April when other Viking units, along with Wehrmacht units, came and drove the Soviets away from the town. But the last thing the Germans could afford, in terms of manpower, was to keep all these units in one area. Hence, in early June, the Viking division was sent to Masijo, just west of Kovel. Within the Viking, Mullenkamp's 5th Panzer Regiment was the very definition of firepower, as the 1st Battalion had 27 Panzer Mark IVs and 20 Stug IVs, and the 2nd Battalion had 77 Panzer Mark V Panthers. On July 6th, the 2nd Battalion spotted a larger force of Soviet tanks coming their way. 
As this was the summer of 1944, battlefield tactics had long since been worked out. So, as at least 100 enemy tanks were coming their way, the 2nd Battalion stayed calm. First, the Germans were well concealed, as to get off the first shot, but only after the enemy was close enough to make it count. Next, several Panthers were peeled away from the battalion and placed to one side, led by the Finn Obersturmfuhrer Olin. As the enemy approached, Olin and his opened up. Right away, a few Soviet machines were stopped. But more importantly, as Olin had let the first ten tanks go by, to then hit the first and last tank of those ten, before going on after the other ones, the remaining enemy vehicles concentrated on him and his. Given his position as the Soviets turned, they bared their sides to the majority of the 2nd Battalion. At that moment, all of their guns opened up. The first barrage took out 50 enemy tanks. 30 minutes later, as the Russian survivors fled, 103 Soviet tanks were left behind, burning. The fighting in this area would go on for another three days, with the Viking, as it just did, combining professionalism, pride, and courage to not only hold the field, but destroy some 300 enemy armored vehicles. Second Battalion knew the enemy's losses would be replaced, but that would take time. For the immediate future, Kovo and Masijo in modern northwest Ukraine became no man's land. Yet the Viking, relishing their out-and-out victory, would not be staying put, awaiting the enemy on the morrow. As incredible as their success had been, it was just another fire that had to be put out, one of hundreds. Soon orders came, on July 13th, for the two battalions to make for Poland. The idea had been to reassemble at Bielystok in eastern Poland, northeast of Warsaw. But that was abandoned, as there was not enough time for the various units to reach that new point and then form up. As impressive as the firepower of the Viking was, Berlin knew it would not be enough. So the 3rd SS Panzer Division Totenkopf was ordered to fall back as well. But the truth was, the Totenkopf had already been pushed out of Grodno, near the Belarus western border, on July 18th. Still, like the Viking, they retreated in good order, but that was more due to the enemy not pushing too far too fast. The overall idea was to slow down the Soviets as they made their way to Warsaw. But the SS troops were about to find out, sometimes, the enemy is already in the house. News spread throughout the Eastern Front that that July, a group of army officers had tried to kill Hitler with a bomb. As such, the Wehrmacht was very much ashamed. And if anything, Himmler and the SS had their prestige raised in the eyes of Hitler and the country. By then, Hitler had already ordered the Viking and Totenkopf to merge, forming the 4th SS Panzer Corps. Herbert Gill was made Obergruppenführer and was put in overall command, with Mullenkamp taking over the Viking. As they were to guard Warsaw, in August, the 4th SS Panzer Corps was augmented by the 19th Panzer and 73rd Infantry Divisions, plus a Hungarian Cavalry Division and an SS Heavy Artillery Battalion. 
But as the Soviet troops closed in on Warsaw and the Axis forces prepared themselves, a new player entered the contest. On August 1st, the Polish resistance in Warsaw launched their own offensive. The Polish Home Army, with surprise on their side, was able to grab parts of the center of the city. Yet over time, the Axis forces just mentioned, and along with others, were more than enough to wipe out the rebels. It was all over by October 2nd. Now, the Polish fighters had been able to give the Germans a hard time, which should have given Stalin a great opportunity to move forward and engage the Germans while they were fighting the Poles. But the Soviet troops did not move forward. There was no general engagement. Instead, Stalin had his artillery batter the Germans around the city, which weakened them, but in no way really helped the Poles. And that was the idea. The Soviet leader knew he was about to come in control of Warsaw, and the last thing he needed were the troublesome Jews to deal with. In fact, the limited Soviet attack went on past when the Poles were put down, until near the end of October. During the time of the Poles' slaughter, the Battle of Warsaw got underway. During the first phase, the newly created 4th SS Panzer Corps was stationed on the northeast corner of the city. It was never a question of holding the enemy off indefinitely, but rather, as they had been doing for at least a year now, slowing down their advance. And in this regard, they did well, except over one bridge that crossed the Bug River. Their confusion reigned as Soviet shells came down on the bridge, which was destroyed on August 26th, along with the German battalion commander. As the Germans were in the thick of the fighting, 12 of their panzers had been on the far side when the bridge collapsed. Those crews had to climb out of their tanks and swim back over the river to their comrades. With this powerful German threat cut off, the Soviets spent the month of September methodically using their vast artillery to wipe out whole enemy units. When the 73rd Infantry Division was considerably weakened, only then did the enemy move forward and take control of the Praga suburb to the southeast of the city center on the eastern side of the Vistula. It was mid-September that Stalin ordered his men to halt so the Germans could do their own grinding of the Poles. Still on the northern edge, the Viking and Totenkopf were still intensely attacked by the enemy. On September 18th, the Allies tried to drop supplies to the struggling Poles, yet a decent amount of those packages fell among the Germans, who were grateful. On the north side of Warsaw, the Viking and Totenkopf, fighting in forested and marshy grounds, found their flanks both pushed back, but they would not give up. Gill could see that it was here that a large offensive was coming, so he asked Berlin for support. The answer was a quick no. There simply weren't enough men to go around. But Gill's response to that no was just as fast. Grabbing up as much of his artillery as he could, he had shells pouring down on positions in front of his men, who were now shaped into a V. This went on for 48 hours, as the target location was 
where the Soviets were trying to form up before the attack. The shelling caused all sorts of headaches for the enemy. Of course, the attack would still come, but it would be delayed as the Russians had to move further back to organize their men. This bought the 4th SS Panzer Corps a few more days to ready themselves. But finally, on October 10th, the assault got underway. The Westland's 3rd Battalion was in a forward position and told to watch out for a straightforward enemy attack. The men kept a lookout, but when it did come, the numbers in front of them were so numerous it was like being cautioned about an incoming wave, only to have something greater than you could possibly imagine charged down at you. The battalion was hit, surrounded, pushed in on, and then annihilated. Still, this weakened those immediate attackers enough that when they tried the same thing with the Totenkopf, these men were able to hold up. And it was men like NCO Alfred Tishkus who made this defense possible. One eyewitness saw Alfred hold his section with six other men, using only a machine gun and numerous grenades. Still, the more numerous Russians came on until his section was penetrated. Quickly, five of his six men went down, and Alfred himself was wounded by some of the flying shrapnel. Still, he stayed on his feet and shot at the enemy, point blank. By the time reinforcements came, some 25 Soviet bodies were laying around Alfred. By such men was how the Totenkopf held off the enemy here. Not that the fighting in this area was finished. As the fighting went on for a few more days, one anti-aircraft position of the Totenkopf was about to be overrun in its turn, when suddenly, out of nowhere, and no one has ever explained how this happened, German troops, dressed in top hats, bowler hats, and some, even in tails, charged the threatened position with machine guns. The area was held and secured. The strangely dressed men were from a penal battalion. The Soviets weren't the only one using soldiers who had transgressed. As October came to an end, the fighting around Warsaw died down and stayed quiet for the rest of the year. Back in early spring of 1944, Berlin was guessing that France would soon be invaded by the Western powers. The majority of German officers serving in France knew that their best bet was to beat the enemy on the beaches. But that's where the parallel thinking stopped. Each commander wanted to do his own thing, and Hitler had arranged it because he trusted no one, so that the command structure in France was overlapping, which would lead to questions of jurisdiction, which would lead to delays, the exact opposite of rapid response. As things stood, Field Marshal Rundstedt was in charge of all forces in France, and yet Hitler would often overrule him. Northern France was overseen by Field Marshal Rommel, but the tanks in that area were under the command of someone else. As fate would have it, the 12th SS Panzer Division Hitler Jungen, led by Brigade Führer Fritz Witt, and the 21st Panzer Division were deployed near where the Allies would land. And on the night of June 5th, Brigade Führer Witt 
was told of heavier-than-normal enemy air activity. As such, at 1.30 a.m., June 6th, he awoke his staff and told them, prepare for combat. Formed in June of 1943, the hitler Jungen Division's men, or rather boys, were trained by the officers of the Liebstandarte SS Adolf Hitler. So, that part of the division's history was professional. To match it, many of the troops in the division were former Hitler Youth members who happily volunteered. Like the other SS divisions, the Hitler Jungen was well supplied, with two formations of infantry, a heavy artillery battery, and a battalion of Tiger tanks. What's more, the Tigers were from Sepp Dietrich's 1st SS Panzer Corps. Even better, Dietrich, the one man you would want leading troops in battle, was coupled with a staff officer, Colonel Fritz Kramer, who had a reputation of taking good care of his men. A solid fit with Dietrich. With the Allied invasion now underway, Field Marshal Rundstedt ordered Dietrich to command a part of the Hitler Jungen, the 21st Panzer Division, and the Panzer Lur Division in a temporary corps command against the invasion. Also, Dietrich was told that the Liebstandarte was still refitting, so not yet available. And now, the beginning of the end of the Nazis' hold on Western Europe. Brigade Fuhrer Witt had already worked out the best route for his unit to use to get to Kahn. Yet, for whatever reason, he was ordered to use a different route by Rundstedt. So, as the Hitler Jungen moved out, it found itself using inadequate roads. Getting frustrated, Witt had a Kampfgruppe led by Kurt Meyer, who had proven himself so daring in Greece, to get in front of this logjam and go full out. This Kampfgruppe had three motorized battalions, tanks, artillery, and a strongly armed reconnaissance battalion. Witt had told Meyer to get in beside the 21st Panzer Division, led by Dietrich, currently trying to hold back the Anglo-Canadian troops. Yet maneuvering around the traffic jam wasn't the reconnaissance leader's only problem. As he made his way to the coast, Allied aircraft bombed and strafed his convoy. With this being the case, Meyer himself got into place late on June 6th, with the balance of his unit coming in early on June 7th. Still, Meyer promised the ranking officer of the 21st Panzer Division that the enemy would quickly be dealt with, saying, Little fish, we will throw them back into the sea in the morning. Witt had told Meyer to maintain control of Kahn and a nearby airfield, but Meyer's men came in so slowly the counterattack could not be launched until the afternoon of the 7th. As he waited for his unit, Meyer set himself up in the Ardeen Abbey, a few miles northwest of Caen. The tower there was exactly what he needed for a solid view. At 2 p.m. on the 7th, Meyer watched as Canadian troops came up from the beach to head for an opening between the villages of Buron and Anthe, which was exactly what he was hoping for. His men were hidden in an area nearby. If the Canadians and British continued forward, they would have their flanks ripped out before they knew what was going on. And that's exactly what happened. 
Meyer, by radio, told his men to hold their fire until the last second. The lead Canadian tanks were brought up short, and the men with them fell where they were. The two closest towns were reacquired by the Germans. Meyer, unable to hold in his joy, jumped on his own motorcycle to get closer to the action. But what he and his men were about to find out was that the Canadians and the British had set up their own trap. As the SS troops had bloodied the Anglo-Canadians, who backed away, when the SS pushed forward, they walked into an Allied trap. Right away, SS panzers started exploding, the crews from them gunned down as they tried to run away. Meyer knew the best response to this was to take the initiative, so he ordered his men forward. But try as he might, the Canadians would not be dislodged. In fact, one of Meyer's Sturmbahn Führer, a battalion commander, had his head taken off by a tank shell. But more worrying for Meyer was that the 21st Panzer Division was not attacking on his right. In truth, Witt had told Meyer to coordinate closely with the 21st for a coordinated response. But Meyer did not try as hard as he should have. Such was his confidence. Also, it would have helped if he had had the entire force that was promised to him, namely the rest of the Hitler and Jungian division. So, as the sun set on June 7th, Meyer was forced to call off his offensive that would have drove those little fish back into the sea. However, the former Hitler youth troops, who were eager to show their manhood and bravery, not to mention getting some payback for their villages back home being bombed, executed some 156 Canadian POWs that day. This would certainly happen on both sides of the war, but the youngish SS troops were just getting started. Greeting members from Central Virginia. I just wanted to pass on a message from Paul, my tech guru. Uh, He said, if you go into the website, and you go in the member section, I believe, and you go into your profile, you can generate a feed key that you can then put into a podcatcher, whichever one you use, and that will help the episode come out there when it's available. If you have any questions about that, um, just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. I'll forward them to Paul. He might even put a support email link in the member section, uh, but just pass that on to me and I'll pass it on to him and he will contact you directly. So I hope that makes listening to these episodes a lot easier. So again, just wanted to thank everyone who's a member who is supporting me, who has supported me um, over the years, and we'll just keep this going and hopefully one day, get to the end of the story of World War II.